Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is David Shipley, co-founder and CEO of Boceron Security, which is a cloud-based behavior change platform. He gives us a new take on how to think about human behavior and security. And spoiler alert, people are not stupid. Yes. And we get to nerd out on the etymology of the word cyber. Um, so without further ado, here's David Shipley. Dave Shipley speaking. Hello, David Shipley. Welcome to the Zero Hour. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, for our listeners who are less familiar with both you and Boceron Security, let's start with you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your journey into cybersecurity and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I'm a accidental cybersecurity professional. I've had a very interesting career path. I've been a Canadian Forces soldier, a newspaper reporter, a marketer for a university, and eventually the security lead for the University of New Brunswick. And, you know, over the years, it's been an eye-opening Alice in Wonderland kind of journey. Um, it began in cybersecurity in Mother's Day 2012. And I can remember that Sunday very vividly when I opened my email, and there was one of a dozen people at the University of New Brunswick to be uh, informed by a hacking group called called Team Digital that our systems had been compromised and information had been posted publicly um, that had not been public. And I recognized the signs of a breach and was able to reach out to some of my friends who worked in the IT department, raised the alarm, and then helped with the incident response. And as a result of my involvement, the CIO asked me to move from marketing, uh, where I had led website redevelopment efforts, uh, into information technology to build a cybersecurity practice. And Baptism of fire. Do that. <laughs> What's that? Baptism of fire. Welcome to cybersecurity. <laughs> it, was, it was absolutely a baptism of fire. And what was interesting is some of the key things that we applied into that incident have, have served me very well throughout my career since, which was, you know, understanding the issue, containing it, then communicating clearly and effectively with stakeholders and leadership mm -hmm. in the community, um, and also owning the issue. Uh, it had been um, posted to Twitter. It was on the web. There was no sense running away from it. And so we were active and communicating. And so the Monday morning, we we're actually on CBC radio here in um, New Brunswick talking about it and how that it wasn't the worst kind of breach. There was no student information exposed and uh, certainly no credit card numbers or SINs or any of that stuff, some non-public budget information, but how we were learning an important lesson from it and we were going to act as a result. And that helped build trust. Um, and that Yes, was absolutely. Um, but what was what was interesting about the Team Digital breach is oftentimes we think about hacking involving China, Russia, North Korea, the access of online evil, as it were. <laughs> um, but the reality was it's much more complicated. The leader of the hacktivist group Team Digital was a U.S. Navy sailor who was hacking uh, the University of New Brunswick from a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier and was caught by NCIS, which is the first time I've ever seen that outside of the TV, TV show. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, it's like those those initials are not real, but yes, they very much are. Yeah, it was it was very much a, a, a real eye opener. 
And then over a, a span of five years, I worked with the IT team and uh, it got real interesting. Universities are a great place to learn about cybersecurity because they are among the most attacked institutions on the planet. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The vast trove of intellectual property, their vast amounts of individual personally identifiable information, their fantastic compute and network infrastructure, which you can use to hide your attacks. And, you know, we've seen this pattern play out for decades, literally the first mass attack against the U.S. military operation Moonlight Maze by Russia in the 1990s was launched from a variety of universities in North America. So it is a playground for hacktivists, criminals, and nation states. Indeed. On a, so, on a previous uh, is, episode, yeah. we, we spoke with the CISO of the Ohio State University, Helen Patton, and, and just getting a sense of the university landscape, which I think we hadn't fully considered that it includes everything from, you know, the retail credit card machines in the university store to the technology that professors use to just communicate with their students. Some use Slack, some use um, whatever third party uh, is sanctioned by the university, that it is such a varied and distributed uh, technology surface that it, it seems like easy pickings for, for cyber incidents. It is, and it, it also highlights some of the difficulties that aren't technological. Universities are in a very interesting place where they're told to be places where information should flow freely and yet also securely. And these are two very difficult realities to reconcile. And you often deal with audiences like faculty members who are not accountable in the same way that traditional employee-employer relationships are. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't force faculty to do things. Um, and when I came on to UND, what's interesting about UND is that it is the birthplace of one of the most successful cybersecurity technologies of the last 10 years, which is the QRadar uh, SIM. And uh, Q1 Labs that came from that was acquired by IBM for $600 billion, one of our province's single greatest startup success stories. And that technology has now gone around the world to more than 6,000 customers. And when I arrived at UNB, I had access to this technology, and I initially thought cybersecurity was a tech story. I thought we could build the perfect system, that we integrate all of the things together, the AV, the SIM, that we could use machine learning and AI, and we could out-tech our way out of this problem. And the reality was you can't. Um, either you can't afford it because it's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly complex to maintain, so you can't staff it. But the reality is that's not where the attacks really happen or start. The attacks are human. 93% uh, of successful malicious breaches against organizations come in the form of phishing emails. Um, and we learned very quickly that if you don't balance cybersecurity, people and technology, um, you won't actually reduce your risk. Yes. I mean, it's by way of analogy, I feel like the breach was your education in cybersecurity 101 and then the realization that you could not out tech your way through the problem is probably like your graduate coursework in cybersecurity because you got deep it, in it. it Absolutely. And one of the interesting things was um, I have a liberal arts background, so I'm not a computer scientist. Uh, I have some very basic programming skills um, and I like to tinker. But um, I come from that school of thought where we give a, a lot of um, time and space to thinking about the meaning and impacts of words. You know, for example, the word cyber is bandied about all over the place, mm -hmm. but few people actually know where it comes from and what it what it truly means and why it was chosen. 
Are you familiar with the, the history and story around cyber? It's my understanding that at least cyberspace was coined by William Gibson, um, the British, uh, American, actually Canadian American fiction uh, writer. You are correct. That's the most recent reference, uh, but there's a deeper story. So Gibson coining cyberspace occurred at the perfect time for policymakers trying to seize upon a way to describe the forthcoming information superhighway and all the change that was about to happen. But Gibson didn't invent cyber per se. He borrowed it from Norbert Weiner's cybernetics, which is the science of the animal and the machine and controlling communications. And that was a seminal work in the 1940s, 1950s. And Weiner is a very interesting mathematician philosopher combination. But Weiner also didn't per se invent cyber. He borrowed it from the Greek word kybernetes, which in some translations means the helmsman or the steersman of a ship. Now, why would the founder of the field of cybernetics base it on a word for a helmsman on a ship? because it's the perfect picture of the balance of things he was talking about. So if you picture this ancient Greek ship, at the back of the ship is a human being. That's the first element of cyber. And in their hand is the oar, the rudder, the steering wheel of the ship. That's the second element of cyber. That's technology. And the third element you can't see, it's control. So Weiner was really focused on this interplay between humans, technology, and the element of control. Boseron, and and the reason why we've taken the stance that we've taken, is that we believe the story should and always and must be humans in control of technology. Because the story of technology in control of humans in science fiction is the Terminator, and in tragedies in the real world, it's things like the Boeing uh, airplane crashes where the computer systems took control from the pilots. Word. Also, bonus points for bringing in uh, classical Greek uh, etymology because <laughs> that just appeals to the word nerd in me. Um, no, that's very fascinating. And we talk about the human factor here a lot at Safeguard Cyber too, because I think, like you, we see the front office and now to some extent back office operations like recruiting and even internal collaboration have moved into these essentially unsecured cloud-based systems, whether it's social media or tools like Slack or Teams. And all of that is now outside your traditional perimeter. So it requires this big rethink about the technology, but then it also requires a rethink about how you either enable, which we advocate people to use those tools, or you try to clamp down, which inevitably doesn't work. It almost always lends itself to shadow IT issues, right? So it's about understanding human-centered security is what we, we try to call it. Absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing is when we started down the journey at UND and I realized that if you educate and empower people, and, and this was the genesis for Bosron, we were talking about how can we patch people? How can we update their skills, knowledge, and curiosity so that they can become part of the security fabric, that they're not, it's not an us versus them relationship. And so we started with this concept of patching people. And then over the course of doing a lot of activities manually, running phishing campaigns, trying to get people to take training, doing lunch and learns, um, doing marketing collateral, we saw the difference we could make. We saw that we could reduce phishing rates from as high as 35% to less than 5% to really um, change that, that negative story. And more importantly, we saw a growing cadre of people that knew not only what a fish was, 
but how to actually report it and let us know this was a real attack. And this was really great because we actually caught sophisticated attack targeting particular individuals that automated systems couldn't catch. Mm -hmm. And we coined that the sheepdog effect. So we turned people from the passive victims of cybercrime, the sheep as it were, into the active defenders, the sheepdogs. And which is why Boceron as a a technology and a company is named after a sheepdog from northern France. That and Australian border collie just didn't have the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. But it's also like, yes, it's like the Pyrenees, which is one of my uh, favorite breed stories where it's designed to specifically blend in with the sheep that it is protecting in order to ambush the wolves that come after them. Um, but that leads us to, oh, yeah, I learned something new. Yeah. That, <laughs> that lead that leads us to a, a, a perfect segue. Right. I love the idea of patching people. Can you tell us a little bit more about both around security? Well, it, it, it's a fundamental belief that the um, the people are not stupid. One of the most insidious um, things that happens in the cybersecurity industry, and I've seen it at conferences, I've seen it muttered by tired IT system admins. I used to say it myself, like, oh, geez, users are stupid, can't fix stupid. They're not. They're not stupid. If companies were truly full of stupid people, their biggest problem isn't cybersecurity. They're full of stupid people. That would be their biggest <laughs> risk. Right. They're not. People are the greatest single asset inside any organization. It's what makes a company um, special, unique, and um, frankly, you know, based on some works by Patrick Lencioni and others, is the single greatest source of competitive advantage. Um, so how do you harness, empower, educate, maybe even hold accountable the people inside the organization um, to actually become part of the security team. And that's not with the traditional approach to security awareness and phishing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about the Bostron platform? I hear it described as a cloud-based behavior change platform, which sounds amazing. Is this, I want to play devil's advocate here. Is this a form of gamification, but it also sounds like you're talking about, um, controls that are put in place to actively educate and iterate and improve workforce resilience. Absolutely. So one of the key things that we realized um, through our experience, and we've since seen some really interesting research on, is that traditional approaches to security awareness haven't been successful. And they haven't been successful not because users are stupid. People, as we've discussed, people are actually smart, they're keen, they want to learn. Um, And not because the content that's been provided is bad, um, but because there's a huge disconnect between the information provided and people's perception that A, they matter, that it makes a difference what they do, mm-hmm. and C, when they, they do things, um, what actually um, impact does that have to the organization? And so when we look at that, we, we came up with this idea of a personal risk score. And, and we used a risk score analogy uh, because credit score had a bit of a, a familiarity to it, but we flipped it because we wanted to set people up to think about risks rather than just about the concept of security, which frankly may be impossible. No mm-hmm. one can ever be fully secure, right. but you can manage your risks. And so um, we developed this risk score. It starts at 500 is low risk. That's great. If you um, have a high risk, it's a thousand. Um, when you onboard, you 
users into our platform, as they do good things like take an awareness survey so we can understand how much they know and care about security and also measure how much they think their organization cares about security and leaders care about security, do some training and measure the results of that training, and then do things like phishing simulations or tech simulations, we get a balanced score. And we have this really cool concept of incidents and rewards. So if you click on a fish in our platform, you don't just get the big scary landing page that 90% of people run away from. Instead, you get a message that can be tailored to the culture of your organization, encouraging you to take remedial training. And when you take that training, the negative impact on your score of falling victim to your first fish goes away. And in fact, if you take the training and report the fish, which we have a really easy to deploy button to do, you actually can end up better off in your score than when you started. And that may seem counterintuitive, but it's part of this behavior change story. Because what we're trying to incent and show people is that even if you make a mistake, the most important thing you can do is learn from it and tell others. Don't hide it so that we can respond and react faster to it. And by using that score methodology, we're tapping into the same powerful force that the Apple Watch and the Fitbit have tapped into with respect to exercise. Have they changed exercise dramatically? No. But have they given people little nudges, encouragements, celebrating small steps and successes, and bite-sized information to change their behavior that in the longer term has a dramatic impact? Yeah, so that's very interesting. Is it up to your customers to decide like, what are the benefits of a lowered risk? Are they offering internal rewards or, you know, what is the incentive structure within inside the company um, to keep users engaged with that learning? That, that's a great question. One of the things that we realized was um, that status and recognition, the scarf model, is actually more powerful than any kind of extrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, people love being told thank you good job. We appreciate this. It mattered. Um, That goes so much further than anything else inside an organization. And when we were doing early versions of the platform, we saw uh, a very strong glimpse of that. If people reported fishes and they didn't get their thank you, uh, they were quite upset. (laughs) They wanted their acknowledgement. I want my gold Uh, star. So, you know... Exactly. Um, And we were layering in some additional things on top of that uh, in terms of things that we're adding uh, into the roadmap, like badges and some gamification elements, sort of Call of Duty-esque in terms of challenges and achievements, that type of thing, um, to help some of our longer-term customers continually to evolve and sustain that change. Yes. I mean, I feel like this this gels uh, with my own experience at at a marketing agency where our cybersecurity training felt like it was just a box that needed checking. We just needed to grind through this stuff because there was this deadline. And if we hadn't done it, someone was going to slap our wrist with a ruler sort of thing. And it just felt like a chore. We've also heard feedback from other leaders in the industry that uh, one thing that really lacks with educating employees on security is that they they don't get the feedback of, yes, thank you for reporting this. This was a phishing attack. You did help us. They just report and then never see it again. So they, they actually like don't a, know. Yeah, they get an automated happened. email that's like, thank you for your response. And it's, it's not, it doesn't, it undervalues the contribution. Right. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And in some in some cases, we're our own worst enemies in the IT field with respect to encouraging users to do the right thing. Because what happens in many organizations that don't have automated tooling or, or things to help users get proper recognition for reporting fishes is it goes to the IT help desk. So they may have set up a phishing at yourcompany.com mm-hmm. and um, it goes into that inbox and then the help desk whose entire business operation now has been geared to rapidly responding and closing to trouble issues, et cetera, they don't really want to take the time to dive into that issue, um, celebrate when people catch a really tricky campaign and respond back. Uh, they just need that ticket closed because that's how their metrics or incentives are structured. Um, so we're not actually giving um, the right information to the right people in the organization to find out that the threats are there and to actually celebrate back to the end user. And there's some additional automated tooling to help speed that process up, but it still is a value-add activity that many organizations just aren't resourced to deal with because that's the equivalent of walking around a building and checking the fire extinguisher tags to make sure everyone is safe. But the reality is most buildings are so much on fire that they're worried about evacuating people. We're always reacting. (laughs) Uh, We're not actually proactive in security. I love that. So it sounds like there's there's two ways to think about this. There's the general awareness of security and, and understanding how your behavior impacts, but there's also different ways to think about security within how you use different tools or um, applications. How, how do you address that when you're trying to work on human behavior? Well, the biggest thing is that we want to we want to make security awareness as contextual as possible. One of the things that we talk about a lot is you can there are a lot of cybersecurity awareness vendors and a lot of great content out there, but it's a lot of generic content. That is, it's not specific to your industry, your company, or your particular policies or approaches. And so, if you're just throwing people at the same five videos that you bought that were great five years ago. Um, they have a declining sort of return, a dramatic decline on mm-hmm. investment. Um, people have seen it, click, 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 done the quiz, done. And, and as you mentioned earlier, it's a compliance-driven exercise. One of the approaches that we've taken is we have simpler content in our platform, but it can be entirely customized. So it can be HTML5. So we have a course editor. You can load your own PDFs in the platform. You can load your own videos. You can use whatever content you want or bundle thereof, and you can make it as specific as possible to your organization. And so you can have things that we've seen clients have videos from their CEOs included in their package to say, hey, this does matter to us. It's important. Thank you for taking the time to learn about this. If we suffer a cyber attack, we could suffer the loss of revenues. We could lose out in terms of um, having to have cutbacks to our company or lose public trust. Um, And those have real impacts to the company. And it makes it real to the employee particularly when you talk about um, as right, much as yeah. possible, here's what we experienced last year. Yes, yeah, not an um, so abstract danger. Exactly. It's a real danger with real examples. Um, and we're starting to see more mature organizations, mostly in the financial industry sector, really embrace that model of this is not just a compliance exercise. This truly does matter to our safety. And so in the in the course of talking to your customers, have, have any come back to you and been able to say, you know, with this platform, we have seen, you know, a similar reduction in in phishing that you saw at UNB or that they have been able to demonstrate. So because I think a larger conversation going on in cybersecurity is that the CISO and the security team 
is not attached to the business, like the revenue end of things and revenue always beats security. And so if they have things that can demonstrate that proactive security controls, you know, make something safer and therefore can help contribute to the operational resilience of the business, that it would be more valued. So have, have any of your customers come back with like clear metrics on, on how they've been able to see the success? So yes, and and the um, the difference is there's some specific examples that we can point to. So yes, we've seen the phishing rates um, reduced as dramatically as UNB or even further. Um, we've also seen a more important metric, the report rates. We've seen companies report rates rise from 30%. So one in three of our simulations is caught and reported successfully using the tools mm-hmm. to some organizations that are as high as 70%. So for every seven out of 10 fishes they send, they get reported back successfully. Employees knew they were fish, you had to report them, which is a more positive metric back to say, hey, we actually are more resilient. With some really interesting metrics because of the way that we do fishing in a fully automated and randomized way persistently over the course of the year, we actually get some really accurate measurements on their time to click, both on the negative, but their time to report on the positive. Um, so there's some really interesting specific metrics, but on an overall level to the broader question of business risk, we do the same thing at the department and organizational level that we do at the personal level. That is, we have a risk score for the organizations, and it's an aggregate of how employees are doing on their training, but we also use the NIST cybersecurity framework to actually give some maturity in process and technology so that CISOs can present to executives a score and a score trend for how they're improving. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Well, I want to take a moment to change course for a little because you are... um, well steeped uh, in most cybersecurity issues and we've uh seen your commentary on everything from the recent face app stuff to um some other issues so given where you are in uh the cybersecurity field and just understanding the landscape in general um what do you see as one of the bigger threats coming into focus whether it's you know nation states 5g um you know iot ddos attacks what what do you think is sort of on the horizon that's a really broad and open-ended question um I, in the last 12 months, we have seen a dramatic escalation in the use of so-called cyber weapons mm-hmm. um, by nation states as part of their uh, military and foreign policy activities. And that puts all of us at risk. The Obviously, the largest single example from several years ago is the Stuxnet malware developed allegedly by the United States and Israel to cripple Iran's missile program. Mm-hmm. There are uh, rumors that the United States has a similar malware program that has been dramatically negatively impacting North Korea's missile program in terms of its very, very high failure um, rates and and some really interesting theories around that. We've heard uh, some attribution from Cyber Command in the United States that they recently used malware to disrupt Iran's missile program. This has started a cyber weapons arms race. Um, And what I and um, much larger companies like Microsoft and others have advocated for is we needed digital Geneva conventions, and we needed it yesterday. That is to say that certain targets, energy, 
healthcare, um, critical infrastructure are uh, off limits. Because without that, uh, we face a very uncertain future. We are far better at throwing punches in cyber and messing with people's worlds than we are with defending things because defense is more complicated. It requires cooperation at unprecedented levels between the private sector and government and requires resources and commitment to actually be secure that's non-existent. Yes, you bring up an interesting point. So we had uh, spoken earlier this year with Miko Hyponen of F-Secure about why and how the international order kind of breaks down in cyberspace. And he was saying, you know, there is a certain level of transparency with conventional weaponry. We, because of treaties, because of espionage, we more or less know the number of aircraft carriers, for example, Russia has, or the number of nuclear warheads. But we do not know the cyber warfare arsenal of any one country like what what capabilities is new zealand developing what capabilities is israel developing it's completely non-transparent and all of those so-called weapons have a shelf life right before the vulnerability gets patched so there's a greater incentive to deploy it once you have those weapons available and if you can't use it you just ship it off to some section of the government that is willing to do it Absolutely. The biggest thing, and this goes back to sort of the aircraft carrier and U.S. Navy sailor experience I had, is attribution is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have an attack that has all the tooling, all of the traditional tactics, all of the sort of traditional targeting that would be associated, say, with a Chinese APT team, but it's actually, maybe it's Iranian, maybe it's Russian, maybe it's even American. Um, the level of sophistication required for definitive attribution is becoming increasingly difficult. So with that, you give um, malicious actors the greatest single uh, cloak for authorization of military operations, which is plausible deniability. You can deny anything in the political world, but is it a plausible denial? And with cyber, there is just this big, warm, comforting uh, foreign policy blanket that is plausible deniability that is causing them to look at cyber as a better way to express their national interest than conventional weapons. Right. Okay. Well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll end the interview with a different kind of question. So we typically have uh, this dichotomy where we ask what you know, keeps you up at night versus what gives you the most hope. But I think we just came off of a a subject that's pretty terrifying. So (laughs) we won't double down uh, on the pessimism. So given your um, stance, given what you know, and I think given what Bosran is doing in terms of your underlying philosophy that um, people are not stupid, what would you say gives you the most hope right now? Over the last year, I've spent a lot of time doing media interviews um, across Canada, nationally, regionally, etc. I have seen a growing sophistication in the questions that journalists are asking me and in turn are asking companies responsible for security. One of the most interesting examples that gives me hope is a small um, story out of Western Canada about the deployment of electronic scooters. And the reporter actually read the terms of service and detected in that terms of service a rather interesting statement about the company's ability to freewheelingly deal or trade with personal information. Um, And they called the company out on it. 
There you go. We tried to use the traditional PR um, tactic of, well, we would never do that. Well, yeah, you say that, but you're legally authorized and able to do whatever you want right here. It says in black and white. And that was phenomenal. We're seeing more Canadians talking about cybersecurity. Um, we're seeing it was a bigger issue internationally. It's actually working its way into the federal campaign that's about to be launched. We saw one political party actually announce a kind of a safe devices certification program, similar to say maybe the uh, ULC standard mm-hmm. for electronic devices. Um, so, you know, things can change. And I, I would say the most empowering thing is people are starting to push back and question whether it's the prevalence of smart speakers and some of the creepy things they're doing and people are pushing back with their wallets on that, or it's the demanding of real privacy laws, like what Europe has implemented in the form of GDPR. Um, we're starting to see people see that privacy isn't gone. It's not dead, not by a long shot, but it's a fundamental human right and it's worth fighting for. And so with that, we will see greater fines on companies, which means they'll actually resource security appropriately. And I also think we'll begin to see a market shift where privacy by design or security by design becomes a competitive advantage. I believe so. I I believe that businesses will see top line and bottom line benefits from security and privacy by design and from conversations that see security and privacy as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. On the social media side, we've got much greater work to do, but there is hope. There are deep conversations happening internationally. Um, I'm most proud of the UK government. And while a lot of the attention on the UK right now is on the Brexit fiasco, a UK parliamentary committee held Facebook's feet to the fire and in numerous ways has dropped scathing reports with clear factual timelines accounting for the bad behavior of some of these social media companies with our personal information. And uh, that action will cause greater accountability and greater scrutiny. And that will be to all of our benefit. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day uh, to speak with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank thank you for the opportunity. And uh, please keep up the good work on the social media side. As I, I did say, uh, that is one area that needs all the love and attention it can get. Yes, right on. We will do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks very much, David. Thank you. All right. That wraps up the first episode of our monthly series for National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Tune in next week for Brian Honan of BH Consulting. That is an interview you do not want to miss. All right. As ever, we are grateful to Matias Cefaletti for our theme music, Abby Bruce for sound design and production, and stay safe, y'all. We'll see you next week. Bye.